So welcome back, everyone. Greetings again. <laughs> and if you'd like, if, uh, if you're back and you can uh, turn on your video, it's nice for me to be able to see people. Thank you. Welcome. So since I last was with the group, which was um, towards the end of February, I've been um, away and mostly in almost total silence for four weeks. I was on a four-week retreat actually on the land at Spirit Rock participating in the March retreat, which is held annually. There's a February and March retreat. A few people do both months. And so I was uh, able to be on retreat like that for four weeks, which is something that's been important for me for a long time. I think I've done the March retreat um, nearly, probably nearly uh, 20 times. And I, I've taught it four times. And so it's been important. So I wanted to offer some reflections because even though I've, quote, done it before, it's always new and fresh. And if it's not, it's not a good idea. <laughs> You know, if it's if I'm just going into some old pattern, that's not so helpful. So what I wanted to offer today are a number of reflections following four weeks of being on retreat. Again, I was almost entirely just uh, sitting in my own room. Which, which I like to do. It lets me have a little more flexibility. I like often to stay practicing for a little longer time than would be done in the hall, you know, two or two and a half hours at a time. Not always, you know, not, not putting my body under strain, sometimes moving, but keeping the practice going. Sometimes I would, you know, sit in a chair and then keep it going and, you know, go uh, sit, uh, my bed with my legs stretched out, but keep the practice going, you know, and so uh, And then I would typically before and after meals. I would take walks sometimes uh, walks up into the hills and Then I would go to three meals a day and people would cook for me wonderful meals strongly recommended <laughs> very nice and yeah, so wanted to share, and one of the other reasons I liked uh, just being in my own room was that in the hall for the COVID protocols, people were still wearing masks. So the people who sat together in the hall, everyone was was masked, which I, and it worked. And you know, we had, you know, including the staff, probably ninety people together for a month indoors, no COVID issues. So really successful in that way. So number of reflections, and I want to, you know, connect the retreat reflections also to, to our practice generally and to daily life practice. So the first is of the importance of retreat for getting away from one's patterns or some of one's patterns and habits and um, responsibilities, which is, of course, not easy for everyone or even possible for everyone, but to wonderful to be away from normal busyness and um, responsibilities and the, a lot of the habitual patterns which are connected with that. So one of the main sets of insights which can be there on retreat as well as just in a 30-minute sitting, is insight into our own patterns and habits. 
And so much of what our practice is about is coming to see our own patterns and habits better. Some of them are helpful, right? They're still habitual, but some of them are helpful. You know, maybe being disciplined or, you know, um, you know, doing one's practice regularly. That can be habitual and very, very helpful. Uh, but there can also sometimes be some tight energy there. And we can, we can sometimes see that when we go on retreat or when we do practice. But more, more commonly, the patterns we see are, what are the patterns of my mind? You know, my planning mind or my uh, tendencies to be judgmental of myself or, or others, you know? Being in silence with another, with 80 people for a month gives plenty of room to make comments about other people. <laughs> Interesting. And, uh, you know, I have to say that um, there are a number of characters who come to retreats. Maybe myself included. I don't know. People may look at me like that. Who knows? But there, you know, there, there's, there's plenty of room just to make comments. Of course, none of us do that in daily life, do we? Make comments about others. So anyway, we can, it's... Um, it just feels so freeing, much, you know, like a vacation for many of us when we go away, don't have the normal responsibilities. Again, not, not available for everyone, but can be very uh, wonderful and freeing. Uh, we notice our habitual tendencies more. And again, we can do that in daily life. Just I think every time we sit, maybe we come to a gathering like this, we see things. You know, and we notice things, and over time, we gain insight. You know, sometimes it seems from my own practice that we uh, actually uh, may notice something a little bit, you know, like 500 times, and then number 501, we have an insight. Ah, I plan a lot. Ah, you know, something like that. The mind is funny, right, like that. We can have the same thing occur over and over again, and then 501st time we have a deep blazing insight, and what is sometimes called, one person called it, a blazing insight into the totally obvious. <laughs> anyway, not to be underestimated, so very, very, very helpful. And so, but we can do that in a sitting. This is why practices, like even doing a day-long retreat, or some of us may do a Sabbath where for one day a week, we maybe have a morning or a good part of a day or sometimes a whole day where we don't do our usual things. And of course, we have that in different religious traditions and can be really, really helpful for coming out of the habitual tendencies, doing things a little differently, and also seeing what the tendencies are, what the what the habitual tendencies are, because so much of our practice generally is seeing the habitual tendencies. And of course, we have a special interest in the ones which are not helpful, which are connected with our own uh, you know, pain, painful emotions and so forth. Again, could be being judgmental of self or other, or um, you know, could be you know, doing too many things, being, you know, trying to uh, do too much and not leave or, or not leaving room for one's own nourishment. We, we want to see those many patterns as well as the, the more uh, almost like uh, less obvious patterns of our mind, just how our, our mind uh, doesn't want to be, let's say, with the unpleasant or grabs hold of the pleasant. And so, so much of our practice is seeing habitual tendencies, again, both good ones and not so good ones, and seeing them and then uh, learning to shift the, the patterns, learning to shift our habits. That's right at the heart of our practice. That happens in a big way on a retreat, or it can happen. It doesn't, of course, always happen. You know, one friend of mine makes room for one weekend a month that she just gives to herself with nothing scheduled. 
and very very healing you know you know to be off of the busyness is so so helpful so for retreat is useful like that there's also a way that in a retreat i think as well as in a sitting or even in a day but it was very explicit for me with this retreat um there's like an opening to the unknown and to mystery which can be inspiring and beautiful and sometimes a little scary you know what am i going to face there's a month right what will be there for me it was you know from having done a month a lot and having you know confidence in the process it was more positive you know it was let me open to what is deeper let me open to what wants to come through that i may not be as aware of when i'm more busy and again that's an aspect of our practice generally you know you know for me i would invite let me open to a primordial wisdom that may come through me more fully may it come through more fully and come through both in experience but also come through in terms of inspiration energy and also a sense of uh, adjustments to make in my life what comes next what adjustments do i want to i want to make and so for me going into this retreat was a lot about opening to the unknown and to mystery i actually didn't have an idea going in exactly how i would use my time you know what practices i would do i wanted to leave that open to what surfaced uh, during the retreat and it did you know it did surface and but having that sense of opening in a way even to we could say to something greater than myself or greater than my personality something more fundamental i think that's also a, a beautiful part of practice um and there's also the dimension on retreat and again this comes up just in daily life and in our practice where things come to the surface both challenging things and beautiful things come to the surface that uh maybe didn't quite have enough space in the flow of daily life right because our our lives get cluttered does anyone feel like things are a little bit cluttered in your life you would feel that yeah and it's it's you know some of it's cultural but it's something that's um i definitely want to be less cluttered and that's that's both internally and externally right yeah it can be really really precious yeah i see a hand and if that's a question can i um oh, or just uh just acknowledging cl- the clutter issue great thank you um yeah so uh there's a way that things can surface sometimes painful sometimes beautiful that uh, don't have so much of a chance in daily life because things get a little bit busy sometimes they might surface however in dreams or you know sometimes uh maybe sometimes on a vacation or if we have some open time but again a lot of us have these habits i've talked with a number of people who even when they go on a vacation their minds are wanting to fill in the time right oh i'm not doing anything now i should be doing something right it's very interesting how that how that works and so um you know for me there there uh what comes up uh, what came up uh, were all included uh sort of a deepening of aspiration and a love of the process of we might say inner purification you know even though it's hard and you know i've been practicing for about 45 years since i was pretty young and so i've seen a lot and gone through a lot but the um you know the for me on this retreat uh, you know a deepening of the love 
of this, uh, it's really a commitment to continue deepening in wisdom and love and skillful action. That's a concise way of saying what we're about. You know, we have a, a variety of tools and practices that help us with that, but that's what it's about. And so, you know, a deepening of that. And also, you know, at times other things came up. At, you know, the, the, this, this wasn't a predominant theme, but at times for me, um, some unresolved grief from the past came up. Right? Things come up. You know, it's interesting. I noticed, you know, I had a, you know, like 10 or 15 seconds of intense grief about my father's death. Even though it happened over 15 years ago. And I had a pretty good grieving process at the time. But if there was something wasn't complete, right? And there were a moment just of, uh, you know, and being with that for fairly short time, but very pretty intensely for a short time. There are also moments that I experienced of, um, um, you know, several times of uh, regret for something in the past. Didn't have quite enough space maybe in daily life and that could come up. You know, I remember that, you know, one or two evenings it came up in the middle of the night, right? Probably very familiar to us, to many of us, you know, from that happens in daily life as well. And, uh, you know, for, for those challenging moments to hold them with, uh, to be, if there was sadness, just to be with that and to hold it with compassion, trying not to, trying to see if there's any narrative or storyline and not feeding it. And it really, um, just letting it be in the present and letting it be in awareness. And it can lead to compassion because I can know, you know, both from my experience in the retreat and from past experience that everyone else more or less at the retreat is going through that and everyone else who's a human being on the planet has some version of that. And so it can lead to a kind of a deeper compassion. For me, there was also um, there were also insights. Again, you know, one way to look at a retreat. And I think this is also true in as I as I'll continue to mention, in terms of just a regular meditation period or taking a day or a short retreat, shorter retreat, that we we have a sense of what adjustment should I make to my life. And for me, again, uh, you know, uh, I, it's it's very commonly simplify, leave more space, less clutter in mind and in my physical space, right? Uh, I had a sense of what were next steps. I had a sense of, I think I probably attend to uh, news and media a little more than I'd like. Not a new insight, but I've actually made some adjustments since I came back. I've been back for, I guess, uh, four days. Less media. I can have enough news in, uh, you know, 20 or 30 minutes a day. Don't need an hour and a half. Anyone relate to that with the media and so forth? It's, yeah, it's very, it's very, very common. More quiet time, letting go a sense of wanting to really have a clearer um, attention to what's most important because that's one of the things with being busy or having the so-called cluttering is that what's important for us isn't as central as it might be. And so, and again, we can make these adjustments generally, but it often is so helpful to have some open time and space. So to focus more on what's important and uh, to, yeah, to um, be clear about that, not to do too much. You know, one, um, I, for some time, I, I did regularly a short reflection on death, which again is in the Buddhist tradition, is very, very common as a way, a short reflection on death every day, death and impermanence, 
is often suggested as a way to um, help one focus on what's most important. You know, and you know, the, you know, this is a line from the Buddha. One who wants to practice, one once who wants to practice, must every now and then revert to the thought, death will take place. So this regular reflection, death will take place. Things are impermanent. Could be just reflecting on that, you know, two or three minutes a day will have an effect. And maybe I can talk in greater detail about that another, another time. And so there's also from, from that a, a sense, again, it's part of sort of a deepened awareness of, for me, of the preciousness of every being. You know, the preciousness and the gifts that everyone has to offer. And, you know, appreciation of everyone, appreciation for small things for the beauty, you know, you know, it's things slow down, you know, at Spirit Rock there, as some of you know, the um, place is filled with wild turkeys. I think during the pandemic, they probably took over and then they thought it was really their place. And the humans came back and they said, yes, you're welcome to be here as well. <laughs> but it's filled with wild turkeys who are just, uh, they, I don't know if they behave the same way, you know, a valley over, but they are pretty comfortable with humans being pretty close. You know, I try to give them at least five or six feet, but they don't seem to need much more. And anyway, so just appreciation of the turkeys, the lizards, the crows, uh, and, and, you know, and the human beings, knowing the, the other people that retreat, the sincerity really of, of everyone there, you know, and then, you know, it was, was on my mind going to the retreat. I started the retreat three days after the invasion of the Ukraine. And so that was definitely, uh, definitely on my mind, a lot of sadness and sort of the, just the, you know, the, the madness of the whole thing, in my view, the craziness, the unnecessary quality of it and the, the unnecessary destruction and, and, um, and suffering. And so that was, that was there as a background, you know, and maybe intensified a little bit by the fact that um, two of my grandparents came from what's now Ukraine, from that area, you know, and from the area near Odessa. And uh, actually, uh, they left. It was, it was at the time, you know, this was the first part of the 20th century. And uh, they actually left. It was controlled by Russia at the time before the uh, Bolshevik Revolution. And they left because of the oppression of the Russians, right? And they came, they tried to come to the U.S. and they were able to do so. But, uh, and I may well have relatives there, I don't know. It's it's not it's not clear and probably probably most of them were were killed by the Nazis but don't really know. You know? Um, so you know, being being of Jewish ancestry. And so that was that was a, that was a background and you know also you know knowing that any time that there's you know, this kind of situation, it's, you know, also some concerns, some fears, you know, um, kind of the, you know, when you have a nuclear power engaged in a war, it's a pretty dangerous situation, you know, and so forth. So that was something I was aware of going into the retreat and was some of the, you know, some of the background and, you know, sadness and some, some, uh, some concern And of course, coming back, it's still going on. You know, it's still happening. So that's something we all we all are holding in our in our um, consciousness. You know, with you know, probably a lot for a lot of us, a lot of sadness. You know, even confusion. Why is this happening? You know, maybe some fear or anxiety, some maybe anger. 
different sorts of things. How many can re relate to that? You know, in terms of, and of course, it's not just Ukraine. There's all sorts of things that are less on the radar happening in whatever in Burma or Yemen or you know Syria and so forth. Uh, so one theme which I wanted to explore more is something that I explored uh, last year uh, in it's the theme of not doing. And that, again, was a, is a big theme for me in my practice. And I explored it uh, last year. And for those of you who weren't at those talks, there are a series of talks at the website dharmaseed.org. Um, I gave, I think, five talks on the theme of doing and not doing in meditation and daily life. And so... Um, that's been an important theme for me. It's partly the theme in my practice of uh, increasingly, um, you know, inviting almost like a larger or deeper part of myself or part of reality to come through, you know, to, um, in a sense, get out of the way. And so, you know, one of my, you know, my almost like default practice is a kind of not doing, not even following the instructions I gave you earlier, you know, but uh, really, and again, this is not a typically a beginning practice and it, it requires the mind to be pretty quiet and stable because if most of us said, let me not do anything or we might just be taken away by thoughts and by preoccupation. So it presupposes a certain level of practice where the mind is relatively quiet and stable, but then one, you know, maybe that's there sometimes, and one can open to a sense of, uh, of not doing. And for me, this has been particularly valuable because probably earlier in my practice, I tended to overdo, over effort. You know, it's an issue that, that some of us have of trying too hard, really wanting to be concentrated. I remember I had one retreat where I tried so hard to be concentrated that I almost like uh, kind of blew a fuse and, and I, had, I had some head pressure that lasted for quite some time, you know, from trying too hard. And it can, if you notice in your meditation that you're feeling some head pressure, you know, somewhere in the head or the body's tight, can can pull back some. And I actually learned a lot from that. You know, that was my first, you know, first major uh, initiation into non-doing because the head pressure was there whenever I concentrated. And so for about two years, I couldn't really concentrate in the normal way. And I had to learn how to come to a quiet mind without doing anything, which happened. And it was, was wonderful. So learning that... Uh, that ability to not do. And my experience was when I invite that non-doing, it kind of opens up to a large, quiet awareness that's just there with everyone. This is also uh, cultivated in, in some meditation practices. This is developed. Uh, uh, some of you may have practiced uh, with people who teach uh, in the style of Utejaniya from Burma. Who, and there are several people on the Spirit Rock uh, Teachers Council who teach in this way. Uh, Andrea Fella, who teaches at Spirit Rock and at uh, Insight Retreat Center, Insight Cent Meditation Center in uh, Redwood City in the Bay Area. Uh, but a number of other people teach with this style, which is also a kind of letting go of the usual doing and it's almost like over time, the mind quiets down by itself. And then you just look for where the mind goes off a little bit. So that it's, uh, again, not typically a beginning practice, but it can be a wonderful practice at a certain, a certain po uh, period of time. And so I, uh, again, I really wanted to invite... Uh, something deeper than my own personal 
will, my own personal intention, almost like some of the, almost like the biblical notion of not my will, but thy will, you know, even though we don't, we don't work with a sense of a, a deity, but really letting something bigger or larger come. And it, it sometimes came as this large awareness, you know, coming, you know, having, going into a deeper a place. And I, I wanted to uh, bring out again some, some other uh, really writers and teachers who've identified that centrality of non-doing at a, at a deep place. And I, I'll bring back something that I, I've used in some of the earlier exploration of doing. This is from uh, Chuang Tzu. This is actually a translation from uh, Thomas Merton. Beautiful book. Yeah, strongly recommended. The way, the way of Chuang Tzu, who lived probably, I don't know, uh, 2,500 years ago. You know, and in, in China, and wonderful uh, sort of following uh, Lao Tzu. And so this is, this is uh, a passage. The non-doing of the wise person is not inaction. The sage is quiet because the sage is not reactive, not by willing to be quiet. From the sage's emptiness, stillness arises. From stillness, action. From action, attainment. From their stillness comes their non-action, which is also action, and is therefore attainment. For stillness is joy. Joy is free from care, fruitful in long years. Joy does all things without concern. For emptiness, stillness, tranquility, tastelessness, silence, and non-action are the root of all things. So that's, that's the kind of the sort of deep, deep place that Chuang Tzu is pointing to. Again, we can get there uh, you know, gradually in different ways, and all of our practice can go in that way, but at a certain point, there can be an opening to this non-doing. You know, again, that was, uh, has been important for me. And Chuang Tzu was also saying that the non-doing can be a way of acting. You know, it can be a way of acting. In, in the past, when I taught, I, I made the connection between um, the sense of non-doing and the sense of um, being fully in the moment without a sense of doing anything, which we often find ourselves in. You know, what was, um, i trying to remember, what's that phrase from the psychologist, Csikszentmihalyi? What's that? Anyone remember that phrase? I'm blanking on it right now. Yeah, please. Yeah, go ahead, Virginia, speak up. Can you unmute Virginia, Carlita? Yeah, it's flow, right? Yeah, being, yeah, gosh, how did I forget that? But thank you. Yeah, being with the flow experience, uh, Chiksen Mahalaji, thank you. I guess I was too much into a flow to remember. I don't know. <laughs> but there, but that, that sense of being in the flow, which people can experience with people really close to them and, you know, in creative activities, music and art, sports and so forth, uh, that flow experience is very close to that sense of being fully active, but there's not a sense of doing. It's just kind of happening organically. That's what I think this is pointing to. And Chuang Tzu is also saying that when we're in that place, there is a deep connection, he's saying, with the nature of reality. He's saying that this, these qualities of stillness, non-doing, are also the nature of things. That's the claim, right? And I think we can find that also, you know, one of the other people that I find has expressed this most deeply is a one of the great uh, Tibetan teachers named Longchenpa. We can, I think we can bring up that slide now. 
uh, Carlita. This is Longchenpa, who lived in the uh, from Tibet, lived in the uh, uh, really in the 14th and 15th century, and he's taken to be often the greatest um, the greatest of all the uh, Tibetan practitioners. The, the area he practiced in would be called Dzogchen. So, yeah, we can let go of that now. And so he, he emphasized how when we have our deepest awareness, there's a sense of non-doing and non-effort. I thought I'd just read a few passages from him because this was something I could really relate to on my retreat. Within the essence of awakened mind, there is no view to cultivate in meditation, no conduct to undertake, nothing to achieve, no path to traverse. Rather, the true nature of phenomena are timelessly and spontaneously present. The factors of effort and causing things to happen are transcended. Another passage, the teaching involves no concerted effort to accept or reject. Naturally occurring timeless awareness, the essence of awakened mind itself is made fully evident. There is no need to strive for it. It rests in and of itself, so do not seek it elsewhere. And here are the instructions. Again, I think this is at a certain developmental stage. The instructions, let your mind and body relax deeply in a carefree state with an easygoing attitude, like a person who has nothing to do. You ready for those instructions? Relax with a carefree attitude, like a person who has nothing to do. So again, that's the kind of the paradox. So that's what you know, I'll actually do a whole day long on that, I guess in May. But it's the paradox is that at certain times, skillful effort, trying hard, discipline, really, really important. And at certain times, we have to let go of that. Interesting, isn't it? Both are important. And it's important to know when, uh, when one is important. But for me on this retreat, a lot of it was just, you know, further letting go into awareness and letting go and not and watching because again my own habitual tendencies are as a doer again anyone relate to that anyone find yourself to be a doer yeah it's again very very common and so even in letting go there can be residual tendencies to be a doer that I certainly uh, noticed and so what that means is that uh, the retreat training, ultimately, just like the meditation training, when we, when we come to the fruition of meditation, there's not a need for meditation. Interesting. Actually, in, in one Tibetan tradition, they talk about the most advanced stage is called non-meditation. <laughs> And you can do a retreat and study non-meditation. Interesting. So paradoxes are all around, uh, but but that that um, so ultimately, there's not a need for a retreat and not a need for meditation. But along the way, they're very helpful. <laughs> so there there you go. And so it's um, so there these these are some of the uh, mysteries really of this path we're walking, you know, and, you know, and finding just what's calling us. Again, a lot of what was important for me was tuning into what adjustments do I want to make with my life, with my practice, what comes next, you know, and what, you know, what um, adjustments do I make? And so, in a sense, each of us has a little bit different path, and we, we find out what the path is only by walking it. In a sense, we could say we make the path by walking it. 
There's not like, you know, the usual notion of a path is it's already laid out. You know, the physical metaphor is that there is a clearing and we walk on a cleared out path. But for our lives, it's actually a little different. We make the path by walking it. And sometimes we have to do our own clearing out here and there. And so maybe, maybe just to close and to say that um, a retreat for me and I think our practice in general is also, was also very much a reminder of the importance of community, of, of friends. You know, I had several friends on this retreat, actually several students as well, and quite a few people I knew. And just the importance of friends and community, of that beautiful connection to the land, and the, um, and the support that that offers, and the, really the, the continual, the, really the continual remembering that this is essentially a learning process, and that it has its ups and downs, it has its difficulties, but a lot of what is really helped by the friends, the community, the teachings is somehow to take everything that's occurring to us in meditation and daily life as part of a learning process. Not easy, right? Not easy. Oh, I'll take the good things as a learning process where I'm really having fun learning. And the difficult things, they should really get out of the way, right? Anyone relate to the, having that thought from time to time? Right, but it's um, actually what we learn more and more is that the difficult moments are part of the process, much as we would like to get rid of them, much as we would not like to have the difficult moments. But the, really what the community and the teachings and the friends do is they help us to take everything as learning. You know, I have one friend who has um, very significant uh, trauma history. I talk with her a lot. A lot of what my talking involves is just reminding her that there's a larger process going on of learning, of healing, of purification. Because it's really easy to forget that when there's hard stuff. Right? And that's what we can remind each other about continually. So reminding that you know, and um, again, a retreat can be helpful because there's so much support that this is, um, you know, taking life as a learning process. And it's a learning both about, you know, our own particular, as it were, learning curriculum, but also about the deep learning curriculum of being more wise, more loving, and more skillful in all of our actions. And so again, I think our practice and retreats more and more help that understanding, really the two understandings to be at the center of things, that this is a learning process. Everything is, as it were, grist for the mill. Everything is part, taking everything as learning, as part of a learning process is key. And then it's ultimately a learning about being wise, loving, and being skillful in our being with others and our actions in the world. And so just having that, for me, um, further reinforced is a fruit of um, a retreat like this. So thank you so much for letting me share. I hope this was interesting and not like, uh, you know, a, a slideshow from vacation, uh, which Sometimes it's not always fun, but um, so thank you for allowing me to share some of the insights. I wanted to really connect it with uh, each of our practice. So thank you so much. And why don't we take a moment, just a, a short moment of quiet and just sit for a while and see what was, what may have uh, resonated with you, what may have been helpful.
And then also see if there is a theme you'd like to explore more. Could be something you bring, you ask for more clarification about in a moment, or ask a question, or something you want to pursue on your own. Themes or questions that are there for you. Themes to be looked at more deeply, maybe maybe um, brought up here. Questions you have that you'd like to bring up here. Or on your own. So thanks very much. And again, we could um, we can use the raised hand function and speak. And if anyone wants to be anonymous, you can send something via the chat to Carlita. But it's, if you're if you're willing, it's nice to see um, see people. Um, let's start with Nancy. Uh, thank you for your talk today, Donald. I haven't been on a month long for a couple of years, and it was good to have a reminder of how valuable that experience can be. Um, I hope I get back into one at some point. Uh, you mentioned you might uh, discuss more about uh, contemplation of death mm. uh, and impermanence, and I would um, very much second that. I spent two years in the Heavenly Messengers program oh, yeah. studying aging, illness, and death. But oh, yeah. that program ended, oh my gosh, seven years ago. Yeah. And I think it's really good for us all to have a reminder of contemplation of the impermanence of this life and the importance of living the life we do have to the full. Yeah, it can be really, really uh, crucial. And it doesn't have to be too involved it can just be, I, I did for about two years, I had a practice every day for about 10 minutes, just reflecting on impermanence and death. And it can be very, uh, very ordinary, like to reflect on impermanence, how the seasons are changing, or, you know, political regimes come and go, or, you know, who's famous comes and goes, and just in a very ordinary way, or this is changing in my life. But the you know to reflect on impermanence, but then also bring in some attention to the fact that things end, including my life. And again, there's there's again the the purposes of the purpose of such reflections is typically, as I mentioned, to help one to have a sense of what's important, even what's urgent. You know, you know, in in the traditional teachings, these kind of reflections were offered. Um, to help people have an urgency about practice. Again, this was even in a, a culture in which they had a sense of rebirth, but it was still, you know, the sense that, uh, you know, something in a sense continues. But still, it, it was, uh, so if I think for us, the purpose is really to, um, you know, not, not really be blocking out uh, impermanence and death as, again, it, happens on a cultural level in a lot of ways. Thank you. Thanks very much. Looks like uh, Barbara is next. Hi, Barbara. Hi. Good. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Good to see you. Glad you're back. I loved your sharing your experience on the retreat. It was not like being there, but it was really lovely. And I think it was such a valuable topic to do today. Thank you so much. What's fascinated me were two things today. The one that I think Nancy just mentioned, reflecting on death, I'd love to have more of that and really understand it better. I think it, the other one was the non-doing. And you said that in May you were going to be doing something on that. I'd love to have really understand it to be better. And what came up for me when you kept talking, it just sounded so delicious. I would like to get there and yeah. 
And it felt like the word contentment, like ultimate contentment yeah. came up when you were talking about it. And for a while, when I was talking with friends over the years about what your goals or aspiration, I always mentioned contentment. And, and someone said, well, how can you have such a low low bar? That didn't sound good enough. But to me, is that do you see a relationship, I guess my question is, is there a relationship between non-doing and what would just be ultimate contentment? Yeah, yeah, thanks, thanks, Barbara. There's a, there's a lot there. And yeah, uh, in terms of the resources on doing and not doing, and again, I, in, I gave a talk series, I think last year, probably, I don't know, April and May, March, April, May, and you can look on Dharmacy, I believe there were five talks and it went into uh, different uh, areas. And I am going to be, quote unquote, doing a, uh, a day long, uh, I think May 21st, and it'll be available uh, both in person and by Zoom. So people um, away from the Bay Area could be part of it uh, on Zoom. And it'll be, uh, be a whole day. And, I see it. Yeah. And and what I've done in the past sometimes, I've sometimes had a small group of people after that day long continue maybe for three or four sessions to keep keep the uh, learning going. So uh, those are two resources, you know, both uh, some learning in person and exploring that. And again, there's a, a sense of a balance uh, between the value of doing, like I mentioned, being disciplined, doing your practice every day, there's a value of that. I'm not, uh, but there's also, I think, at a more, I don't know if we want to call it mature or deepened level, it's very important to uh, let go of the doing. That there's something, and again, this comes out from a lot of teachings. There's something about the deeper awakening, being not so much a doing but uncovering our true nature. That's a clear way to say it. It's more of an uncovering. And, you know, the, to the extent that there's doing, it would be an uncovering or even a, so to speak, getting out of the way and letting our deeper nature just express itself. You know, we, and again, we, I think we often think like that. We think that beneath everything we might say is love, right? And we just have to, uh, in a way, get out of the way so to speak. So, uh, so there's this deeper expression of, of uh, non-doing. Uh, and it can, this is related to your question about contentment and so forth. There can, I think that that non-doing is deeply related to contentment. That being said, I think contentment can be understood maybe in our culture in some ways as a kind of passivity or uh, a kind of uh, um, lack of ambition or, or lack of uh, really being proactive. And that, I think, would be a misunderstanding of non-doing. In okay. other words, the theme more is that there can be a kind of non-doing and deep action can come out of it. And in fact, there can be a kind of contentment, even one, even as one is being a social activist. Right. Right. That's, yeah. that's an advanced state, but that's, I think, what this is pointing to. And so, but I think the way we uh, sort of understand contentment, sort of the cultural meanings, is that it means just sort of, uh, it has connotations often of, not doing anything and being, you know, which I think is, uh, uh, there's another sense of contentment which goes hand in hand with the, uh, with the, with action. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Thanks for bringing it out. It's quite a, you know, it's a nuance, yeah. Thank you. Thank, thanks, Barbara. Okay, Virginia, please. Hello, and thank you so much for 
um, you're sharing today. Um, I was, was also thinking about not doing, and I'm wondering if choiceless awareness is an example of a practice that is more about non, non-doing or not doing. I know yeah. sometimes yeah. for me, when I, when I get sort of lost in that traffic jam of discursive thinking, and I go to choiceless awareness, I just think of it as this kind of resting in spaciousness. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. And um, Carlita, could you have uh, me and Virginia on the on the spotlight? Um, so I attempted that, and for some reason, I'm not... There it goes. I wasn't getting both originally. That's why I was doing that. Sorry okay. about that. Okay, we have it now. Very good. Yeah, um... Choiceless awareness is understood in different ways, you know, and in some ways our fundamental mindfulness practice, the way I described it at the beginning of the session, could be called a kind of choiceless awareness. We set up our anchor and then wherever the mind goes, we follow it. That's a kind of choiceless awareness. We're not choosing to go to the planning thought which just arose. Uh, We also can use the phrase uh, choiceless awareness for a deeper place where there is where the mind is relatively quiet and we can just uh, sort of track one thing at a time, not even using an anchor. You know, and I I think that's what you're pointing to, right? Like uh, my mind can be stable enough so I can sit there, you know, in, in our... Wednesday class, when I've taught that, I've sometimes used the metaphor of being next to a river, looking at a river and noticing maybe there's been a storm and whatever comes down the river, we look at it right when it comes before us. Okay, there's, there's a, a limb of a tree, there are a bunch of leaves, okay, they're continually coming through. And my practice of choiceless awareness is simply to track what's there in front of me right now. And so when the mind gets quiet, it can, you know, it can take, it can look different ways. It can, it can be, uh, okay, now, okay, now there's a, now there's a thought. Oh, now I hear a sound. Oh, now there's a body sensation in my shoulder. Okay, and sometimes it can actually be very, very rapid you know, where things are happening very, very quickly, and they're not even conceptualization. You know, so it's actually, when it gets very strong, it can be like, almost like that, like little, very things happening very, very quickly. Um, and, yeah, there is still, there, and so what we've done with that kind of choiceless awareness of those latter kinds that I, that I mentioned, which sounds like that's what you're pointing to, um, with those latter kinds, we've let go of, of many forms of doing, but not all. <laughs> we've let go of the will, of really of intending to be aware of something, like the breath. We've let go of that. We've let go of choice, of will. Uh, we've uh, let go of trying to concentrate. So there's a lot. There's a, a lot of you know. We've really minimized the doing, but there's still some doing occurring, which is namely the tracking. You know, there's still a knower tracking what's coming through, with the with the um, with the flow of experience, and so it's not fully a non-doing, but that it can be. Um, there can be a further step that we take which is that we're, when we get really, really stable with the choiceless awareness of the kind that, that I've just described, where things are happening very quickly and there's a real uh, stability of the noticing, but we're still tracking, at a certain point, we let go of the tracking. We let go of that element of doing, and then that open, can open up to a spacious awareness. Where the, where the things are still occurring, but we're no longer tracking. So we've let go in that sense of um, a further level of doing. So some of the training in non-doing can be sequential like that. We let go of this, but we still have other things happening. We let go of this, we let go of this, and then we 
let go even of the tracking. And that can open up to um, kind of a lot, like I said, a large spacious awareness where all of the phenomena are still occurring, but we're no longer tracking. So I think that's relating to what you were bringing up. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Have you, have you, do you, do you, um, as it were, do something like that where you consciously let go of the tracking and go into awareness? Yes. I, I mean, it, it, and it is kind of in stages. It's sort of a letting go of the anchor first. Yeah. And, um, you know, kind of ex, ex, an expansiveness into that spacious awareness um, until it's really just kind of, it's restful in a way. Yeah. Yeah, that's this. This would be one of the ways, um, and probably what I'll, I'll teach some on May twenty first is is that there can be almost like a stage process, which goes into non doing in meditation. Like you say, we maybe start with having an anchor. We get stable, you know. Gradually, we and we we uh, there's a certain kind of doing just to keep coming back, and then we. When there's enough stability, we let go of the anchor, and then um, we let go of focusing here, and then you know, and there can be several stages. Uh, the last one, which would have been letting go of the tracking, uh, you know, and so we could identify, you know, we could call this um, a gradual process of letting go of the meditative doer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's interesting. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for the question, Virginia. Thank you. Okay, maybe time for, is there anyone else who wanted to speak? Was it, looks like, uh, looks like we had one more. Is it uh, Larisse? Maybe this will be the last one. Did you did you find Larice Carlita? I did, but I saw a hand clap as opposed to oh, a hand raise. Oh, yes. thank you, thank you. Um, I, I wanted to say that I really enjoy your talk today. I can resonate in everything you said, and um, your the, pra the practice has saved my life a lot, many many different levels in different ways. The practice has saved me, um, and I thought I was living in the moment. Um, uh, most of the time, but when I started losing my eyesight, which I'm legally blind, oh. and, I, and my vision, you know, I don't have, my vision's very, I don't have much vision, a little bit, I noticed that if I have to stay in the moment for safety, for, you know, for listening to my other senses, and it's helped my practice deepen a lot. Wow. Because uh, if I don't stay in the moment while I'm walking with my seeing eye cane or I'm walking around my apartment, I hurt, I hurt myself. I get banging and wow. stuff. I, you know, I, you know, that kind of thing. So I've been practicing a long time, but this is such a different level of my practice. And, and, um, and especially during the pandemic. Um, you know, during the pandemic, I deepened my practice. So, well, I'm, I don't know what I'm trying to ask you, but um, I just know these are my experiences with the living in the moment. And we don't have to meditate every day to live in the moment because everywhere I go and everywhere I am, I'm in meditation. Because you, you're saying that. That resonated with me. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Larissa. It's... Um... And thank you for sharing, you know, that process. It, it does relate to some of what I was talking about towards the end of how, you know, that um, some other people may have taken uh, losing eyesight um, in a different way. And you took it in a way which deepened your practice, which is, we, you know, I would, I would bow to you. <laughs> For that. Oh, that's, thank uh, you. That's, um, it's, I have a long ways to go, though. Still, you know, it's, I mean, you know, know, it's very, it's very inspiring. I think to me, I imagine to most or all of us that uh, that because again, it's easy to know that it could have been otherwise. You know, be caught in the challenge or the pain of it, and 
and somehow, um, you know, it's like I was saying, taking everything as learning and deepening. So it relates to what I was exploring at the end. So thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, so thank you again. Thanks for wonderful themes brought out in the, uh, in the discussion. And uh, I think I will see you all in, in a few weeks. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna be traveling in, in a while uh, to Kentucky and North Carolina and we'll see you in I think uh, I think I'm here the last two Wednesdays in April so probably three weeks three weeks from now I think and so um, let me finish with a uh, let me finish with a dedication of merit and uh, or actually let me I usually finish with two things. I actually forgot how I usually do things at the end for a moment. That's funny. That's what happens with a retreat. What do I, what do, I do? Yeah, just like I forgot the flow experience. That was very interesting. Anyway, um, so first let's just pause for a moment and reflect on um, anything learned from today that you want to take further. And we close with the dedication of merit. May our time together be fruitful for us, be helpful for us. May there also be benefits for others in our own circles and then beyond our own circles in known and also mysterious ways. May our time together ultimately be a benefit to all. So thanks everyone, and we can uh, say goodbye now. I'll do my usual move. <laughs> bye, Donald. Thank you. Can, you. you can unmute if you bye, want. Donald. Yeah. Bye, Thank bye. you very much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Safe travels. Thank you. Thank you. See you next time. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thank Thank you. That was very nice. Oh, well. Be safe, everybody. Thank you, Carlita. Thank you. Yay, Thank Carlita. You. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Good to be with you all. Have Good a good week. Thank you. you too. Okay, bye -bye. Safe travels, Donald. Thank you. That question. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.